To moderate uh, talking to the Commissioner at ASIC, Danielle Press, is Matthew Smith, Director of Retail Content at Connexus Financial, and a superb session to enjoy. Thanks very much, Lawrence, and good morning, everybody. Hi, Danielle. G'day, how are you? Yeah, great. Great to have you along, and thanks. You, I'm not sure if you can see the room, but there's about 100 licensee heads, so. Right. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> I hope it's a little warmer there than it is here. It's crisp. It's very crisp. Yeah. That's nice. Look, um, straight into it, uh, it's been a kind of a robust conference and a lot of conversation. Some of the, I suppose, aspects of it, uh, talking about advice affordability. Um, so, you know, in my first question, um, the advice affordability project. Um, it seems to have been a massive consultation and quite a lot of feedback from industry. What have you learned from it? And can you kind of share, share some of the highlights there? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we, had, we did have a huge number of submissions. I think we had 466 um, once you weeded out people who put double submissions in, which was kind of cute. Um, and 400, uh, sorry, 242 of them were directly from advice providers. So that for me shows how engaged you are um, around this issue, um, which is really, which is really great to see actually. Um, what did we find? Respondents want shorter, easier access to simple guidance from, from ASIC. I can completely understand that. Some of our guidance is very long and it's very challenging to get through. Um, barriers to providing limited advice was a big one um, and a lack of clarity about what the regulatory requirements are there. Um, again, I can understand that. There's been a lot of talk around this um, and I think there is a fairly easy solution to that. Um, costs of advice are rising, right? We know that some of it is due to overhead, some of it's regulatory cost some of its combination of those. Um, it seems that the preparation of statements of advices are taking, and there's and there's a, seems to be quite a conservative approach to that. Um, again, that's starting to drive up costs. None of this is new, right? None of this is rocket science. Um, I think that was what, um, for me, was a little, uh, um, Little concerning in a sense because there was no, there's no easy answers here. But it was actually good to know that there's nothing new that we've missed. I think it's about how do we now solve these, some of these problems. Um, you know, the next question I'm pretty sure you're going to ask is, well, what are you going to do about all of that? Um, probably a really decent question to ask. And what, and what we are that? trying to do is, is sorry. What are you going to do all, about all that? Okay. What are we going to do about all that? Um, thank you. Um, <laughs> So really subject to resourcing and, and, you know, this is the big one is, is how much is all of this going to cost, right? Because we, we're also aware that everything we do gets flowed through, but we are hoping to develop a landing page on our website that financial advisors can use. We're trying to make our guidance written for advisors as well as compliance people. I think at the moment it's very legalistic and compliance driven. Let's write it for the people who are actually providing the advice so that you can understand what we think is required from the law. Um, we're also working with the other, uh, the other agencies, so AFCA and FASIA, to make sure that the examples we're giving are ones that they agree with. So that's pretty important because what we're also hearing is, well, that might be what you say, ASIC, but FASIA takes a different view, AFCA takes a different view, 
um, and our compliance team takes a different view. So therefore, we're not going to do it. So we're trying to, I, I guess, work across agencies here to make sure that we can be clearer. Yeah. If we, without what we think is right. You brought up the issue of resources, Danielle, and I'm interested in being a little bit introspective. Um, the recent budget uh, showed, a, a, I, I guess, a, a lessening of, of, of ASIC's resources, and I know that um, there's a new chairman there now. Can you talk a little bit about ASIC's, I, I suppose, um, position in the industry and how that's evolved and perhaps um, the resourcing that ASIC needs and can you know, draw on to, to continue to, to do its role? So resourcing is always um, is always a challenge, right? There is a balance between um, what we can do, how much we can do, and how much we're funded for. Um, and obviously, that funding is industry funded, so we're very conscious of the spend. I know some of you might not think that, but we we really are. Um, the reduction, I think, we, our funding was reduced by about twenty three million in this budget. Most of that, most of that directly is actually in tandem with a number of our corporate registries moving across to the ATO. So, um, as you would know, we're responsible for business names, we're responsible for business registrations and a few other things. So, in part of the modernisation business registry program, that took that out. What we were disappointed about and I guess now have to find the funding um, to do, which is why I talked before about this is all subject to us having the funding, is we weren't funded to take over the single disciplinary body. So, you know, that's a that's a pretty decent sized piece of work for us to be able to implement that in the way the legislation requires us to. We're going to have to find that by cutting other pieces of work that we do. Um, and unfortunately, the big discretionary piece of work that we do um, is this access to advice piece, is the guidance piece, is the, is the getting it better piece. Um, so we are still looking at this at the moment. Our budget for the year, we know what the government's giving us, but the way we're splitting it across the agency hasn't been fixed yet or finished yet. As you pointed out, we have the new chair that started a week ago today. Um, he really wants to get his head around some of this before we put final, the final pen to paper um, and the final income, what, what we're going to spend across the business. So the other thing that, that ASIC wasn't funded for um, is breach reporting. So again, that's that's uh, we, we know that the breach reporting requirements are changing by law. Um, we know that we're going to get increasing in breach reporting. Um, how we actually deal with that as it comes in our door, and I know that it's an issue for industry as well, is how they're going to deal with actually getting over some of the, the requirements in breach reporting. No, those two things are big issues, and I think we're we're still working through and working with industry across the financial services sector about how that looks. Mm, really interesting. And we, we've seen a massive proliferation of licensees in the industry um, following the bank exits. Um, you know, self-licensing has obviously become a massive trend and, and, um, and so I presume it makes your job even more difficult um, given the licensees across the country aren't just kind of within the big four institutions and in addition to that, probably don't have any balance sheets anymore. What are your thoughts about regulating an industry of that nature? Yeah, it's, um, it is also a great question. It's one of the things that keeps me up at night, actually, is that changing landscape uh, that we're, we're facing at the moment where we are seeing a proliferation of smaller players um, 
and I don't think that's bad, uh, but as a regulator, it's more difficult. It's much harder to work out what door I need to go and knock on um, and say, please have a look, um, you know, <laughs> what are you doing? Um, so, so I think what that means mm -hmm. for us is that the way we think about um, the way we think about regulation, the way we think about um, our surveillance is changing um, and we are having to do, um, it, we have to be more nimble. We have to be different. We have to rely on breach reporting. We have to rely on um, reports of misconduct. So, you know, I would, I would urge the people in the room that if you're seeing poor conduct from a licensee or a planner, you know, please come and tell us, um, reach out, let us know. I know I'm, I'm sort of dobbing a mate, right? But um, we're not going to see it. And unfortunately, it does the whole industry damage when bad stuff happens at the edges. There's been a lot of talk around the conference about individual licensing. Um, the, the, the structure as it stands obviously today is, um, you know, the, the licensee rep um, model. Do you see that? continuing in the future and do you think that that model works for what you just described which is yeah um i mean look the the, the question around individual licensing is very much a matter for government right um yeah. i think asics view is pretty agnostic on that um I, I think you know again the government will set the regulation and set the standards as to how it works i'm not convinced it solves all of the problems i'm not convinced uh, but it might solve some of them so i think that's very much a matter for government to be honest if we get to an individual licensing stage i think the role of the licensee will change um and then how we look at you know how we work with the licensees as a regulator um i think is a, a really interesting one right and, and we would have to see wouldn't they just disappear in an individual licensing regime or would they continue? Well, I think if they disappear in an individual licensing regime, then somebody still has to do the work that the licensee is doing on compliance, right? So where does that work go to? Does it go to the regulator? Does it go to a slightly different structure of licensee? I don't know the answer to those questions, but, but somebody still has to do the work and I think as a regulator we rely a lot on the licensee doing that compliance work right um, if that licensee is not there anymore who's going to do the compliance work so there's a couple of um, uh, advice reviews underway um, in the hands of uh, Treasury I believe um, yeah. what's ASIC's role in those advice reviews uh, yeah, so look, we, we are um, handing all of the work that we've done in the access to advice work. We're handing all of the files that we're doing in the life um, reform, the, the lift reform work. We're handing all the work we're doing in the cost of advice work straight through to Treasury. Um, so all of, the re all, of the, um, the, all of the recommendations or the, the requests that people had around law reform are all feeding into that process. Um, we will work with Treasury the same way as we do um, in any um, reform basis on providing, you know, frontline experience on what works and what doesn't. However, you know, this is, again, very much a government-driven process. Um, we're not even... At this stage, the framework hasn't been set for what that next year's advice review is going to look like. So, again, we're sort of waiting a little bit like industry is to see what that looks like. But we will be working closely with Treasury and providing all of the information that we've got 
to date to push through to them, which is also partly why some of the work that we've that we may have thought we would have done following the consultations will actually won't do because it will be covered by the access to advice uh, the the um, treasury review of advice um, on the ALRC review of the legislative framework. You know, we're following it closely. Um, we're providing input where we're required, uh, but that's very much a process that's um, with the ALRC. Yeah. Um, uh, the, we, we've talked a little bit about the prescriptive versus principles-based regulation. What's your view on the, um, the preparedness of the industry to follow a principles-based regulation versus uh, more prescriptive regulation. And as a, I guess, a supplement question, we talked a lot about regulatory guidance um, and forks in the road um, in the corporation's law. Can you talk a little bit about um, the necessity of um, regulatory guidance and perhaps whether ongoing it will remain as, as important mm. as it is today? Um. Yeah, so, so look, with respect to how prepared the industry is for principles-based, I think it's mixed. I really, I really do. I think, again, the, the consultation that we did um, suggested people wanted more prescription rather than less, yet they want a principles-based approach to regulation. Those two things are, are completely at odds with each other, right? Um, so I think I think the answer is it's mixed. I think, and I think it depends on who you talk to in the industry. Will depend on whether or not they're prepared or not for principles based. Uh, at the end of the day, we are a principle based regulator. The law, how prescriptive the law is, um, is really a matter for government and parliament. Um, there are some things in the law that are very prescriptive. Um, there are some things that are more are more principles based. Um, when it comes to guidance, the role of our guidance and our regulatory guides, our info sheets, is really about how we interpret the law, right? They don't form law. <laughs> they don't form precedent. It's about how we interpret the law. So, you know, we saw it not in this industry, but, you know, dare I, dare I say in the, in the Wagyu and Shiraz incident where there was a difference in the way we interpreted the law. Right um, in the responsible lending cases, there was a difference in the law. So the court sorted that out. That's fine. That's that's right. But um, our guidance doesn't set law. Our guidance sets our interpretation of the law. Um, we do try to find a balance between prescription and principles based. We do try to find, um, you know, to, to describe the principle. I, I think the challenge in advice is that everything turns on the client. It turns on the circumstances of the client, right? So by definition, it has to be as principles based. It's very hard to be very hard to be prescriptive when I think at the end of the day, particularly in complex advice, it all matters where, where the client sits and what the client's doing. Yeah. Um, so we're getting to the last 10 minutes, so I'm leaving plenty of room for questions. So please, everybody, have a couple of questions. Um, the last couple from me. Um, that, that there was a little talk around um, this idea of compliance overreach by licensees, uh, and I'm interested in bringing that up again. Um, what's your view on the interpretation by licensees of regulations and guidance, and and do you think that, that, that is appropriate for 
the, you know, for, for the way the industry is being regulated? So let me start, I, I guess, with a, a slightly motherhood statement. But, you know, licensees' processes and their approach to compliance is, is very much a decision for each licensee. It's not for the regulator to say what you can and what you can't do in your compliance. I think Pamela Henrahan said earlier today, you know, regulation sets the base level. What goes above that is, is a matter for each licensee. We have definitely heard feedback and we've seen instances where licensees do take an overly conservative approach, we think, to the compliance process uh, that goes beyond what is required by the law or beyond what's referred to in the ASIC guidance. Um, you know, is that adding to the cost of advice? Probably. Does that frustrate some of the advisors? I think definitely um, in some licensees. But at the end of the day, the licensee has, has that responsibility and it's, and it's really up to their business models as to how they choose to do that. What I would plea, though, is please don't blame the regulation for a more conservative approach to the way you're implementing your business model. Because that's, you know, it's, that's where I think this friction comes when we hear ASIC says we can't, when actually everything we're saying is you can. Um, the licensee may choose not to, and that's their decision. Is that a rooster in the background, Danielle? Is that a rooster in the background? Oh, sorry, that's my rooster. This is the problem with doing <laughs> How good. <laughs> it's not a problem, actually. It's great. Um, look, if there's not a question on that one, you know, please, uh, anyone in the room, aside from the rooster, have any questions on that? Because, it, you know, I think that's, you know, I think that was a really interesting point. Do you need me to summarise it? Or, I mean, Danielle's saying that um, that uh, it's licensees making advice more expensive. Anyone? Comment? <laughs> okay. Quiet room, huh? <laughs> All right, right. I might have been verbal there. I'm not sure I did say <laughs> it's making advice more expensive, but I think it definitely changes the cost structure. Okay. Yeah, that's Darren Steinhardt from InFocus. Uh, Danielle, it's interesting to hear you say, make the comment that it is licensees making um, the cost of advice more expensive. I look at our business and while ASIC is our regulator, we refer to ASIC as our primary regulator, um, but we also need to make sure that we set our rules and standards so that when we have a matter that goes to ASCA, we can defend it, so that when we have a matter that goes to court, we can defend it. Um, and so, and also, and most importantly, one of the, the more recent possibly a higher, um, in, in, our, well, in many businesses' cases, another regulator recently added to the pot is their PI insurer. So if we have low standards, our premiums are going to go through the roof, which then puts another cost burden on everybody else. So I just wanted to just make that point. Yeah, no, look, I think that is a, a really good point, is that we're not the only regulator, we're not the only people that interpret the law. Um, and, you know, I think that's why I started at the beginning with saying it's very much the the licensee's prerogative and business model as to how you choose to, to interpret some of this and, and what risks that you're prepared to take in your business. And that's absolutely a matter for each licensee. Yeah, great. Look, um, you, know, you know, really interested in your comments about being agile and innovative as a, as a regulator, you know, thinking, um, you know, with um, less resources perhaps going forward, what, what you need to be able to do to regulate the industry. Let's think in, in three years' time, you know, there could be obviously a, a number of different 
pathways, but you know, how can the regulator, what, what kind of regulation will be required in, in a few years' time in order to, to be able to um, you know, keep an eye across the industry, the bad apples. We talked before about the pr proliferation of um, wealth coaches that um, sit outside the ASIC regulatory regime. You know, how can, can ASIC be across that and, and, and still allow um, you know, operators within the regime to be able to, to, to offer advice and, and hopefully affordably as well? Yeah, it's, um, it's a challenge. I think we need to rely more on data. Um, we, we need to think about how we use um, flags in the system to actually identify where we think problems might be occurring. Uh, and I think there is lots of, there, there, there is a lot that the data will tell you if you look at it and ask it to talk to you, right? Um, the problem is the same way as um, Pamela Hanrahan was saying earlier, you know, technology is tough, right? Yeah, I know those roosters are chatting away. Um, <laughs> so good. The, um, the, the, the technology, the build is, is, is expensive, it's tough, um, it's, it's complicated, right? So, but we need to do, I think, more with data. I think the other thing, and this is the Danielle Press view of the world as opposed to necessarily an ASIC um, view yet, but we are thinking about it, is what is the role of licensing, right? So, so I think at the moment, um, the licensing process, you sort of provide the information, you get your license, you move on. I think there's probably more we can do at the beginning part of that licensing process to ensure that the bad apples that you talked about don't actually come into the industry. Right, so if we can if we can tighten up some of the licensing, use licensing more as a as a strategic tool for for us in the way we think about regulation, we may I think in three years' time you'll see that that licensing becomes more important. Um, the the issue of PI is a really again a really important one. Um, it's not just this industry that's having trouble with PI. It's across the board. Um, we are doing some work at the moment with um, the Council of Financial Regulators around, you know, what is what is the problem? How do we solve the problem? Um, because I don't think it's necessarily an asset problem to solve, um, but it is one that's affecting the industry for sure. Aside from um, other regulators, are there partners that you'll be seeking in the industry to um, get better coverage or to, 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 to do a more um, kind of robust job? Uh, you know, commercial uh, partners within the commercial environment that would work to, to do data partnerships? Um, yeah, look, I mean, we, we, are, we had some, a couple of reg tech programs um, earlier last year around some, some commercial players looking to how do we build some reg tech, compliance tech. Um, we, so, yes, the, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is... You know, at the moment, I couldn't tell you exactly what that is, but we would certainly be partnering with people to ensure that we've got the right outcomes. Okay, a couple more minutes. We've got a question down here on table three. Um, hi, Danielle. Thank you for all that information. Very interesting. Nicola from FDA. We just, I just noticed that um, there seem to be a lot more advisors going out and getting their own AFSLs. Um, that seems to be increasing quite a lot. And I wonder if ASIC has a view about that? Um, the, yes, there are. Um, I don't necessarily have a view um, that it's good or bad. I think that what we need to do is make sure that those people that are licensed are appropriately licensed. Um, I think the challenge, one of the challenges, and um, Matt 
raised it earlier, is what is the capital structure of some of these um, the, these licensees? You know, if something goes wrong, do they have the pockets to actually pay out and remediate remediate the client? Um, so, so it's those sorts of things that we're concerned about, um, and it definitely changes the way we think about the regulatory environment. You know, it was it was back. And, and this isn't new either, right? This is this. You, you guys have been in the industry as long as I have. Some of you, I'm sure. When I first started in the industry in the early '90s, it was all independent financial advisors. There was all smaller groups providing um, advice. They were then all gobbled up by the the larger licensees. That's all starting to split back out again. So it feels like it's a little bit of deja vu. I'm hoping that we can go back and think about what the settings were. 30 years ago and not go back to those, but at least learn from the mistakes that we made back then and try to try to make sure that we're actually setting up for success and setting this industry up for success because, you know, I'm a, I'm a great believer in advice. I think it's really important um, for not all Australians, but for a lot of Australians, I think are, are really well served by great financial advice, um, you know, and I want to make sure that we can deliver it properly. Yeah. And just to quote... Sorry. I was just going to ask, I just want to see if we can take the suppress button off the room a little bit. Uh, hi, Danielle, Colin Tate here. We'll have uh, any questions, you can do it anonymously on this occasion if you need to. This is a great opportunity to interact with the regulator. Danielle's made herself available and you all have questions that you're too scared to ask. Who's got some courage to actually engage with the regulator? Questions, comments, we've been talking for 24 hours about the issue around the government regulatory frameworks. And here's the boss that gets to implement them. Anyone? Yes, please. Go ahead, grab a mic. Thank you. Anyone else? Grab a mic. As I say, it can be off the record. Thank you. Yep, another one there, a third one there. Great, thank you. So, Danielle, hi there. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for being open. We'll uh, just take some anonymous questions from the floor, if that's okay. Go ahead. Hi, Danielle. Tom Redcliffe, uh, Encore Advisory Group. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just going to ask you, I think we were talking yesterday, there's a little bit of, there's some confusion at the moment. An example would be fixed term agreements versus enhanced FDS, uh, and also the upcoming breach reporting, which comes in October. And we did talk yesterday that we're all not quite sure where we stand, and there's different views coming from different law firms. I, I have three clients with three different views They've got their own license, so that was. I'd just be interested in your comments on where you are at, in, and there are probably two examples with regulatory guidance. Yeah. Um, so the breach reporting piece, um, we're still working through. Um, you know, I, I I hope that breach reporting will sort of find its balance. You know, that obviously the new regulations are are coming through. Um, I think there will be a I think I think the industry will find its groove on this. It's a big issue across the industry, um, and we've still got more work to do. Our industry still has more work to do. So I can't really um, say more than that, other than that we're still looking at it. On some of the fee disclosure pieces, um, again, I think there's some there's some parts of the law that are pretty tricky. But this sort of becomes the regulatory the the legislative framing, not the regulatory framing. Um, and I think that the challenge that that we have is that when it is when we don't have modification power, which we don't in most of these, 
you know, we have to enforce the law. Um, I agree with you that there are challenges, and I, and I understand that it's something Treasury is, has in their... Uh, right now are thinking about and we're certainly talking to them about it but um, I don't have a good answer for you unfortunately. Thank you. This table here. Can someone change my voice for this? Um, <laughs> so one of the one of the human traits is we don't like to dob um, yep. and I'm pretty sure that most people in the room don't have a squeaky AFSL, squeaky clean AFSL. So the challenge is if you, we are at the ground we do see things that are going wrong, but if I actually report, then I'm opening myself up for investigation and no one's squeaky clean. So not asking for whistleblower exemption or that, but what? how do you actually see to use us as part of dobbing while also protecting? We're doing best endeavours to try and um, comply. Great, thanks for the straightness of the question. Danielle? It, it, it's a great question and I can, you know, I, I, I hear the, the tension. Um, I think what's really important is to come back to what is ASIC actually looking for and what kind of actions do we take? You know, we're not... We, we don't look to... Um, we don't look to go after people who have accidentally breached their licences. You know, we, we, we look at less than 7% of breach reports and actually take them anywhere and less than, you know... Um, breach, uh, reports of misconduct is about the same. So at the end of the day, we are looking for the egregious, we are looking for the bad, right? Now, I think um, some of this gets tied up in, um, and I hear it all the time, oh, but you took us, you know, you went after fees for no service, you went after and very hard after the Hang Oil Commission. I do think we need to put that in a box and say it's somewhat different. Um, you know, if you think about the people that we ban and the real, the, the the actions that we take, it's generally pretty egregious behaviour. Um, and in fact, I reckon everyone in this room would look at the people that we ban and go, yeah, that's pretty reasonable. Um, there are very few that we get people kind of going, no, that's not right. I think what we need to do as a regulator is be better at explaining that. So I guess f for me, the Dobbin and AFSL, we're, we're, again, we're looking for stuff that's causing real harm here. We're not looking for stuff at margins. We're looking for things that are, are really creating consumer harm, that are systemic, that are, are at, that are actually undermining the industry as a whole, um, not necessarily looking for somebody who doesn't have a squeaky clean AFSL, because I completely agree with you. You know, we all make mistakes. We all do things that are, you know, unfortunate and in, in the light of history you wish you hadn't done. Um, but... You know, that is, that is what it is. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for the harm. Danielle, uh, on, that, on that question, uh, a couple of thousand people at least have left financial planning due to compliance costs, due to education standard changes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, some, many more thousands actually, but we know of a couple of thousand that have relocated into non-AFSL, non-ASIC regulated environments, calling themselves money coaches or whatever. Uh, what, what does the industry do before the next train crash of um, upsets and concerns that's going to hit the media and politicians and all the rest of it? Yeah, um, again, it's a great question and it is something that we are quite concerned about is that unlicensed advice piece, right? So we do know that there are people playing on the fringes. It is illegal. <laughs> um, when we see it, 
and we, we have evidence of it, we will go, you know, we, we will try to take it. It's, it's a little bit like whack-a-mole though, right? Because, you know, I think you said before, you've got people that are running the rat race um, and they pop up. I think, again, what we're trying to do is, is where we can stop them, um, where, we, where we can't, again, I think it's about trying to, to set financial advisors up and, and this is not the job for the regulator, but we can play a part, is how do we make sure Australians actually are looking for good advice? How do we make sure that they, they want advice from an advisor, not from a money coach? Um, you know, how do we make sure the value proposition is right? How do we make sure that, that Australians that need advice actually go looking for the right advice? And I think that's a matter for industry as well as regulators, as well as government, you know, as well as consumers, actually. Um, I think there's a really, if we can work out what the value is for advisors and we can articulate that, then people will go to the advisors, not to the sharks. Okay, you know, well, the same way as most people go to a doctor and not to a, a voodoo specialist anymore. So that's a good question for our next speaker to pick up as well, Dante Digori, uh, FPA CEO. But we'll take a last anonymous question from the back table. Back to you, Matt. I don't mind not being anonymous, it's okay. Hi, Danielle. It's Alison Dummett from Matrix and Clearview. A couple of things. Number one, thank you for restating the point about uh, egregious behaviour. And I agree. Most of the things I see people banned for, they should be banned for. But what I'd like to just state is that most of us here in this room take being a licensee really seriously. We're investing in technology. We're investing in, in um, supervision and monitoring activity. And we make sure that we've got some capital up our sleeve in case something goes wrong. My concern is that we're making that investment. We're asking advisors to make an investment in that as well because they pay fees to us and their own development and education. How do we ensure that those entities that are taking it seriously aren't the ones bearing the burden of future technology development and those people that can't respond to ASIC now don't get a free ride? Uh, it, it's a great question. It's a perennial one. Um, I'm not Again, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. Um, but... Um, you know, I think it's it's one that is a, an important question um, and it's important for us to think about as we're, again, as we're setting, framing um, and thinking about what the role of licensees are, what the role of compliance is, you know, what our focus is. It's a, it's a really important one for us to think about and make sure that it's not the, it's not the usual players that are continually getting hit with, hit with the bills or hit with the compliance notices. Um, and that we are trying to work out how we broaden that scope. I don't, I don't have a great answer for it, but it's certainly a problem that um, we recognise. It's a good place to finish. Uh, Danielle, thank you very much for your openness and um, good morning to your hens as well. Um, but uh, thank you very much. And thanks everyone, Danielle. My pleasure, thank you.